cannabis. The world is opening up to legalization, both medicinally and recreationally. And of course, if the right business circumstances exist, innovation will inevitably take its course. So we're here with Kevin Fortin, who is a patent attorney, and he has been in the cannabis business for over a decade. So we're going to talk about innovation in cannabis. This is stuff you should know about IP. Yeah, and, so, and cannabis and cannabis is really a cool topic, right? Because it's federally illegal, but there's like 30 states that have legalized it. <laughs> but patents start in federal district court. So you have to try to enforce a cannabis patent in federal district court when it's federally illegal, right? Anyway, Kevin, talk to us. Absolutely. That, that is one of the big questions that, that people have this intellectual um, confusion. And the good news is, and this is what I always say, and it just blows people away, patents give you the right to exclude others, to stop people from doing something. So you're in federal court with your arm around the judge. We want to stop these people from selling their infringing products. And it's perfectly aligned. Right. So that's the only yeah, they, want stop, they want to stop the use of cannabis and we want to stop them from using our cannabis patents. Yeah. So you're going after your competitor, putting a black hat on them, trying to put them out of business. It's a perfect forum for that. That's a great, and it's that a great is the narrative. only time in the whole cannabis industry that you're aligned with the powers that be, it seems. But <laughs> oh, it's right. perfect for patents. That's right. you're, you're no longer the rebel. You're no longer the outcast. Now you're part of the establishment. Exactly. Now, <laughs> you have to understand one thing about patents. The pharmaceutical industry has paved a very wide path. Hmm. Everything that they attempt to patent is illegal because they don't have FDA approval yet. And they don't get FDA approval unless they know they're going to get the patent. So because it costs money and they want protection. Oh, wow. So they don't have FDA approval and they won't get FDA approval till they know they can get a patent. That's interesting. So right, right. That wouldn't make sense. Outside of FDA approval. Yeah. So everything that's filed in the pharmaceutical space is probably illegal from the <laughs> FDA perspective. So the patent office just doesn't care. They don't look at that. Everything that's illegal gets pumped through, assuming that the FDA will give it the rubber stamp at some point. So um, there's also treaty rights. So <laughs> foreign countries, um, we have to respect when they file in the US the, that the rights will flow. So the patent office on the patent side of things, not the trademark side of things, but on the patent side of things, it's a big wide open door. People never understood that. I mean, early on people, or in their mom and pop situation in their one state that doesn't have any neighboring states where it's allowed. And they just don't think out of the box, like this is going to be big business, right. international. It's going to um, require patents to have an edge. So when you're selling in Walmart, you don't want Walmart to white label your product, right? Right. <laughs> right. Oh, by the way, though, before you go on, Kevin, you just I just thought of something, and that is to have a trademark you need to be lawfully doing business in commerce with your products, right? In interstate commerce. So or, a bona fide, or a bona fide intention to use yes. it. Yes, 
income. Yeah, so it must be difficult though to get trademark protection on products that are not allowed to be sold in interstate commerce. Imagine a pendulum swinging. Initially, it was super difficult. Then the first farm bill passed, it was easy. And then the next farm bill passed, or then it became more difficult. Then the next farm bill passed, it became easy. Now, now, we're, now it's very difficult for orally ingestible products, including hemp-derived CBD products. If you have a topical cream and it's hemp, CBD, or other hemp-derived cannabinoid, pretty easy. Everything else is very difficult. And the question becomes, what do you do under that circumstance? The trademark office is being difficult. They're the proxy of um, certain large online distributors of products as their first level of um, regulatory compliance. You know how certain larger um, distributors of online products that are really making a lot of money during this COVID situation. <laughs> Those guys get the post office to subsidize them. They get the trademark office to put, put the regulatory stuff out front. So they're really benefiting here. And the trademark office is doing the bidding of the FDA and the, the DEA. That still comes up sometimes. Hmm. Um, and to some degree, they're supposed to. But they're really the front line for um, regulatory compliance. So if you can get a trademark, really good. There's yeah, other yeah, ways yeah. to do it. You can get a trademark on your topical product and extend it to your orally ingestible product. And maybe nobody really realizes that that's sold in the same area of the store. And, mm. um, and you could build common law trademark rights. Right? Yeah, so if you can't get the federal rights and you can't sell at Amazon, um, their trademark law was the first consumer protection law. It enabled consumers to see the mark and understand what the quality of the product was. So imagine the little symbol on the side of the beer barrel coming through merry old England pulling, pulled by horses, and then they broke out the beer barrel in the town and poisoned everybody, everyone got sick. The king started getting upset when this started happening. So they enforced the first trademark law. And um, people that had the wrong label on the barrel and made everyone sick got in trouble. So it's a really it, cool story. Yeah, it's a consumer protection law at its heart. Now, it strayed from that a little bit, but really, you know, the state has an interest and the people have an interest in making sure there's no confusion as to the source of the goods. There's That's no great. confusion as to the quality of the goods. So you have your common law trademarks, which is just a right that exists from you selling a product in your state. You can go to court and say, hey, these, this, these other guys are duping all the customers. There's a remedy. Um, there's also state registration of trademarks. So if you're selling marijuana in California, you run to the secretary of state where you've filed your corporate documents and you can press the trademark button, pay a small fee. <laughs> so yeah, right, you, right. you have to do that after you've been selling the product in commerce. So that's that's a way of doing it, the 50 state way. The federal level, you still do it. The, it's really good. Even though you know you're going to lose at the end, you file it, it's published, everyone knows about it, creates a track record. Um, 
then all of a sudden, two years down the road, you can't get the mark, you just refile. It's not that expensive. And instead of going to court and- um, And like, you're building federal <laughs> common law rights all along the way. Um, not common law rights. Th those are built by just selling the product, but you're putting your stake in the soil, putting people on notice. Half the benefit of federal registration is being in the database. So yeah. It, so they decide, well, maybe I'm not going to use this mark. It's already in the database. Mm, right. Presumably someone who puts it there in the database by filing their trademark application has the desire to enforce it too. So if you want to enforce your mark, you can't get it registered. There's a unfair competition law at the federal level called the Lanham Act. The Lanham Act prevents or remedies deceptive business practices. So when you're out there deceiving customers showing, you know, you're the trademark infringer using the little triangle on your cannabis product, whereas the other guys have been using it for years, you're duping the customers, that's unfair competition and there's a remedy. It could be treble damages. So even if you don't get the trademark registered, you still have a remedy. Yeah. yeah. Registered mark where someone's using it in bad faith and they're duping the customers. So, so what about what about patents? I know that it's it's a huge thing now that companies are starting to race to get patents so that at some point, you know, they could be acquired perhaps by one of the uh, large pharma companies or large, you know, food or beverage yeah. companies. Yeah. So, so the way the business cycle works, you have all the mom and pop guys. A few of them get patents. Um, in the marijuana side of things, it's still federally illegal. So it's all small businesses. As soon as the rescheduling occurs, which I don't think is great for mom and pop, but there'll be a huge push for consolidation. The big guys will get in, a lot of Wall Street money on the cannabis side. And that's when patents will be important because then you can control the market for your product nationwide. So why would why would they be important to mom and pops right now when the consolidation occurs? So in order to obtain a patent, you have to file. Um, you have to file when you invent it. So, if you're selling the product, there is a one-year grace period to get a patent to file your patent. But if the product's already been out in the market, then it's no longer new, and you can't file a patent application after the fact. You have to kind of do it first. So these guys put their stake in the sand prior to their launching of their product or within one year of launching their product. And that's why they get the patent rights. If someone else were to file later, all of this prior art exists and they really can't get the broad patent coverage. So you're setting up, just like when they had the gold mining days in Colorado, people would rush up to the mountains, put stakes in the ground, run down to the patent office, literally, and they would register their claims and they would work their property and they would win um, when they discovered gold. And it's the same thing with the patent law. In fact, it's derived from this land patent concept in the mining industry <laughs> where you're staking your claims and you're obtaining your patent at the patent office. It's literally the same thing. That's pretty cool. I never knew that either. I'm learning. You know, great look, thing. At, look at the mining days with the gold rush and silver rush back in the 18, whatever, 49. In California, you stake your claim, you have the claim, you're working your claim, the big guys come in, buy your claim and, and put a bunch of people there to help 
get the minerals. So it's the same concept. The big guys like to wait on the sidelines and they don't have any risk. They wait till a claim is productive and then they go in and buy it. <laughs> so it's yeah, the same yeah. thing in the, in the mining industry as it is in the, in the patent industry for cannabis. That sounds exciting. So in the future, when the consolidation occurs, those companies with the most meaningful patents today might have the most leverage with respect to the, you know, impending acquisition. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, if you're going to spend your money in an acquisition type setting, you want some insurance, right? But you can't buy insurance. The only way you can get insurance for the marketing dollars that have been spent building the trademarks is to get a registered trademark. The only way you can you can ensure your um, product development dollars and your R&D dollars that were spent aren't wasted, um, you get a patent for that. So these entrepreneurs that do those things are essentially buying insurance policies for the acquirer when they come in to, to give them the assurance that there's not going to be immediate competition for the product that's out on the market. So right now, I, I noticed that the num number of filings in patents has gone from increased by 50% from 2012 to 2015, then 15 to 18. So clearly, people are getting what you have in your head into their heads, that they better start racing to get some patents. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, they were going to close the patent office down in the 1880s. Because they said everything that's useful has been invented already. This was yeah, the I remember industrial that. Revolution. <laughs> that was the that was the like the head of the patent office in like eighteen. Yeah, obviously he probably had some agenda in the background. One of his uh, supporters probably um, didn't like patent infringement lawsuits. Um, but that just gives you a, an idea of how off some people can be with their perspective. So when I say that everything's been invented in the cannabis space, it's just not true. And I'm not going to say that. Um, some people might say that. It's not early for um, orally ingestible products. It's not early for different extraction methods that are solventless because solvents introduce toxins. It's not too early for alternatives to CO2 extraction, which just because you have a machine there with different parts and metal and things, the uh, pressures and the CO2 extraction, there can be some toxicity to the final product. I'm kind of a green guy and, and a holistic medicine type person. And I just don't like toxicity in any product. And right now it's not super regulated. So you want to get the cleanest organic toxin-free cannabis product, especially if you're sick. Think about it, you know. Oh, yeah, you're already sick. <laughs> you're already sick. Yeah. And it's probably because of the toxic load from your food and, and all of your, everything else that you touch. Um, so right. for, I'm a big proponent on having kind of clean products. So there's also the angle for orally consumable products of bioavailability. And then there is synergistic ingredients. I have one guy that went to the rainforest in Peru and He's a great client. I use his product, but it's um, he's found these antiviral um, plant additives that he puts in his CBD product, and it gives it a super strong antiviral effect. And 
And so he uses these rainforest herbs and mixes them with the, uh, the CBD products. So if you got some viral infection, you're shivering and your muscles ache, you can just take one pill and it'll solve your problems. Now I'm not saying it solves the problems, but I'm just saying that he uses the shaman down in Peru to for help formulate his product. <laughs> yeah, right, right. But you know, it's, it's kind of funny because the shaman down in Peru, he was probably doing this stuff for, you know, a few decades, right? Well, with the um, additional stuff, but he probably wasn't using cannabis. Right. Yes. And that's, so, where you, that's where you get your line of patentability, right? Yeah. You mix your products and some would say, oh, it's obvious to use the antiviral with the antiviral and they have pain management products, but the results we're getting are super surprising even it's not one plus one plus one equals three it's one plus one plus one equals eight in this case yeah so yeah. if you have surprising results then it's not obvious because if, if it was obvious people would have done it already yeah. <laughs> and the results wouldn't be so surprising yeah and your results wouldn't be so surprising so um yeah i have another client that really perfected the topical thing he's a pharmacist in, in missouri and he knows how to formulate stuff he's a compounding pharmacist and he took his knowledge from the pharmaceutical world and he put it into the cannabis space and he mixes the terpenes and the, the isolate of this cbd and my wife uses his product every day for her neck and stuff like that it, it's just I have to keep getting it. I don't make much money with this client because I'm always buying their product. <laughs> hey, there's many forms of compensation, Kevin. Yeah, you're, yeah. You're a happy wife. You're, you're, how, how much, how valuable is that? I'm telling you, yeah, it's worth every cent that I lose for it. Um, so I'm happy to do it. So there's some brilliant products that are out there, but what I wanted to to do in this conversation and in any conversation, we're only talking about orally consumable, topical medical products. That's only 5% of the potential of cannabis. You're like, what? Think about uh, hemp. That's exactly what I was thinking. You read my mind, Kevin. <laughs> Think about like hemp and the history. And you look at the Dutch, they used to have the world reserve currency, you know why? because they built their sails of their boats out of hemp fabric, their ropes out of hemp. They were the biggest hemp growers in the world and they equipped all of their Navy, all of their ships with hemp, which does not rot so easily as any other material that they might've used for sails. Hmm. So they had like the best equipped Navy, their sails didn't tear and rip and shred after a couple months at sea. Um, they really had a huge advantage and they had the world reserve currency for a while. Um, so that was a, a story about hemp and the potential for hemp is just incredible. There is some a PhD um, professor that I talked to that now teaches at um, Clarkson University in upstate New York. Um, he used to uh, teach at one of the Canadian universities where they developed um, hemp graphene. Graphene is like a super cool form of carbon that they just invented, you know, 10 or 15 years ago. And you can make that out of uh, hemp fiber. And one thread of graphene as thick as a cat's whisker can be separated and woven into a net that can actually hold up the cat. That's how strong graphene is. Wow. 
and it can be used in um, semiconductors because it, it's conductive and, and it has really interesting conductive properties. It can be used in supercapacitors that are could be integrated into automotive batteries, things like that, because, um, so this is starting to look, <laughs> so when you're talking about graphene, you're talking about space age materials, things that can build a scaffolding up in space. You're talking about things that can really change how we manufacture everything. It can be impregnated into plastics. So with hemp, moving to plastics, you can make hemp plastic, anything that you make out of petroleum, out of, out of oil, you can make out of hemp. So it's, they have hempcrete, which is a building material. They use hemp herd as um, bedding for animals. Now, if you're in Kentucky and you're in the horse racing business, for example, and you have a big labor cost with all your horses and all your barns, and you're using one kind of bedding that you have to switch out after three or four days. If you use hemp herd, the inside of the hemp stock for your bedding, it doesn't get as stinky as fast. It doesn't degrade as fast. You can leave it there for a couple extra days. So your labor costs are going way down by using hemp herd, just the raw central part of the hemp stock. There's how hemp plants. How, how hard is hemp to grow in mass quantities. Oh my God. So in, in Poland, there's a strain of hemp that grows like 30 feet tall. You can sequester <laughs> more carbon with a hemp field than you can in a rainforest. So it grows faster than a rainforest. The um, ability to grow hemp, especially in the Midwest where you know, probably Indiana is one of the best places according to the um, agriculture department in Kentucky, which they wouldn't say unless it was true. Um, so where there's some rain, where there's flat land, wherever you grow corn, you can grow hemp, okay? So yeah, yeah. it's really an incredible um, opportunity. Now, I haven't even talked about, you know, we have these modern space age materials that can be manufactured. You can use um, hemp to, to manufacture plastics. There's people with plastic forks and spoons. They're not as bad for the environment as fracking and pumping your uh, fossil fuels out of the ground. Um, so it's really a, an amazing product. There's um, so many other uses for hemp that it's, uh, anyway. How is, how is hemp uh, different in, re in, in terms of regulation from, you know, like a normal, uh, is it any different than a normal like cannabis plant? Yeah, so the word cannabis botanically includes hemp and marijuana, cannabis sativa. So that's the distinction between hemp and marijuana. They're both cannabis. They're both cannabis. Hemp has less than 0.3% THC in it, according to the federal law. Um, okay. States have their own laws, so every state's different. In Indiana, they make you jump through so many hoops to uh, grow hemp, even though it's legal at the federal level. Nobody's doing it. There's a few people doing it. They do it through Purdue University, typically. Um, but other states like Colorado, they've been growing hemp for years. And um, it makes for a strong stock when you're growing it in a dry, high altitude environment and there's a lot of wind and stuff. So that changes what the plant's gonna look like. But um, in Canada, Manitoba, they grow hemp for seed. The seeds are big and huge and they are the best 
food in terms of the um, protein content. So there's so many different kinds of proteins in there that um, it's perfectly balanced for human consumption. How big are hemp? I didn't see your hand. Were you doing this? <laughs> no, it's smaller than a piece of popcorn for sure. It's about okay. a quarter of the size of a piece of popcorn, but they're, you know, they breed these plants to get bigger seeds than your normal marijuana seeds. So um, it's the perfect protein product for animal feed. If you have show pigs, you want to use hemp seed in the, in the pig feed. If you have racehorses in the Arabian racehorses that race in Kentucky for different things, they've been feeding them hemp seeds for a long time and they've been exporting hemp seeds. Too. And what's the, you were saying that hemp has a certain percentage of THC as compared to marijuana? 0.3% is the federal cutoff. And so that's what hemp is. Yeah, it's less than 0.3% THC. What's marijuana? Marijuana is um, cannabis sativa L with greater than 0.3%. Oh, but is it substantially greater than 0.3% or is it just a little bit greater? <laughs> some, they've been breeding some marijuana strains with up to 20, 30%. Oh, really? In the bud. So they don't measure the sticks and the stems and they just measure the bud, but it can yield up to 30% THC in the bud itself. There could be a massive difference between hemp and marijuana. Absolutely. Yeah. And it depends what you grow it for. With medicine, you're growing the flower or the bud. And that's where the concentration of cannabinoids is. For yeah. other products, like in Manitoba, Canada, they're growing it for the seeds, which pop out of the bud. Um, but, but by the time they harvest, it's mostly seeds on the end of it. Um, yeah. For other plants, they're harvesting it for the fiber, for the stem, for the hemp herd. They make ethanol and oils. And so what I, think, what I think I'm hearing is that Woody Harrelson is a visionary. Is that what I'm hearing? He's on the right track. I mean, he's been this, preaching hemp since like the 90s, I think. Well, look at it. Not I'm looking at it from a patent perspective, all these right. opportunities to develop new processes to do all these things. So I'm really excited about the technology part. Now, Woody Harrelson, he cares about the environment. And from that perspective, he's been right this whole time. And I love that's what I mean. Products that disintermediate these literally dinosaur um, industry products like fossil fuels. I mean, I can't get rid of them today, but if you can do something that can disintermediate these uh, fossil type industries, that's, that's well, awesome in my book. Woody has been getting arrested for planting hemp since the mid nineties <laughs> and acquitted. He's getting arrested and acquitted. But I remember the big days in the nineties when he was you know, a big preacher of hemp going out of his way to get arrested for hemp, but you're right, because he cares about the environment. And it sounds like this is great for the environment. Well, the people in the United States, in my opinion, care about the environment. They don't want poison water from fracking. They don't want the air polluted. You know, they don't want this um, GMO corn glyphosate sprayed all over their houses. You know what I mean? Yeah, just right. Want that. And the best thing about hemp is that it grows naturally. It's like a weed, literally. And it's been growing in the United States forever until, you know, 1930s. But um, so it grows really well. It doesn't need um, too many pesticides, if any. 
It doesn't really need um, extensive amounts of chemical fertilizers to grow. And so compared to corn, it's a, it's a low budget crop. Yeah, it sounds and it's nice for the earth because hemp actually has a way of transmuting different toxins in the soil. It uptakes everything. That's why the seeds are so good to eat because it uptakes everything, but it uptakes a lot of toxins from the soil. Your first couple of crops you want to do something else with, but <laughs> make it into hempcrete. But they grew it at Chernobyl to mitigate the oh, um, yeah. yeah, to mitigate the radioactive isotopes and fascinating they should put it at fukushima too um so it's a magical the plant from the, crops, the first couple of crops you want to grow for the fibers not for the food <laughs> you want right. to put it in hempcrete so it sequesters it keeps it buried in yeah. the wall for a long time hempcrete's a great um building material right now you go to lowe's and they're out of lumber right <laughs> we're having all kinds of problems with supply chain and building materials yeah so the um if that continues it's a perfect opportunity to use hempcrete it's not a structural material it's a um insulation material so you get a foot of hempcrete in the wall it's really lightweight it's concrete mixed with hemp fiber and it creates great insulation it's fireproof and mold resistant so it's oh. pretty good yeah, it's a biocomposite material yeah, they still haven't perfected insulation. It's not as fast as putting up a, you know, a stick stick house like we normally build with, but yeah. then that leaves room for innovation, right? Right. So, you know, I'm all about this disruptive technology whether it's the building trades or you know, Yeah, it sounds exciting. So so just kind of like to give us a quick overview, what are the key areas of of uh, cannabis <clears throat> patenting. It's clearly not in the compositions of matter <clears throat> and plant patents. It's more in the, it sounds like it's in the applications of things like hemp to all kinds of uh, you know, functional areas. Yeah, so there are plant patents. If you're gonna engineer plants, you can get a patent for it. Um, hemp's not planted enough to justify the expense of all of that unless you're planning on populating the Kansas farms with uh, just hemp. Um, the trend that I see lately is in the processing side. So whatever your product is, it's the improvements in the processing of hemp. So you, some people take hemp fiber and they run it through an auger and they enzymes through it and they separate the oils from the cellulose from the other stuff and it creates some um, to make hemp plastic for example so how do you make hemp plastic there's lots of ways to do it if you're in the oil industry you know most of the traditional ways but there's additional ways to do it in the agricultural John Deere is probably looking at ways of harvesting hemp it, some of it has a really thick and woody stock so it, your typical combine isn't going to be able to handle it you need to have improvements in the harvesting equipment oh, right. Right. so um, yeah so in the chemical industry how to separate the different useful components how to put it back together again I mean we have 3d printers that could be using hemp based materials for building houses right so <laughs> the world is That's changing crazy. rapidly and you know when people are stressed when people are under pressure they don't get a paycheck they lost their job all of this stuff mounts up and some of those people 
the light bulb comes on, they invent yeah. stuff. And I've never seen such enthusiasms with this COVID thing, especially of people just inventing stuff like crazy. I don't know how it all comes at the same time. It's um, not necessarily an individual effort. It's a kind of this vibe in the atmosphere that causes people to invent stuff. And it's happening in the hemp industry. So everyone that I talk to, at least maybe I'm biased, but super amount of creativity, super great ideas. And that yields enthusiasm. These people love what they do. They're entrepreneurs. They're not in it necessarily. They want to make money and feed their families, but they love what they're doing. These hemp builders, oh my God, I've never seen such enthusiastic carpenters. Yeah, you have, <laughs> you have opened my eyes. I mean, yeah, this is a really eye-opening discussion. I'm excited about hemp now. Yeah. Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's such a fascinating, um, and, and I think so little known. I, I, almost everything that you've said today was just totally unknown to me. And but imagine, I, mean, I don't know how others are, but. But imagine there's people out there that are thinking about hemp every day. Like this is normal right. conversation for them. Tom How do you know why Woody Harrelson didn't care to, if he got arrested or not? The, the enthusiasm people yes. get when they realize what's going on from the environmental standpoint, from the industrial standpoint, from the medicinal standpoint. I don't sell any products. I'm allowed to say whatever I think. Right. Um, you know, and I, I told the story to Raymond about my dog Lola, the St. Bernard. Um, she was diagnosed with lymph lymphoma. She was laying in the backyard, couldn't even drink water, her head swollen up like the size of a basketball. We carried her into the car, brought her to the vet. She was diagnosed with the lymphoma. They gave her some steroids to reduce the swelling so she could drink water. That happened to be the same day I was working with a PhD inventor that wanted me to license his patents for this particular formulation that I experimented with in my garage in Colorado. And that was the day I came out with my first batch of the formulation. I was like, I'm going to give it to Lola. Gave it to Lola six weeks, cancer-free. Wait, you invented it? No, a PhD invented oh, yeah. I experimented with how to make it. So when I was on licensing, how to make it. When I was trying to sell it to people, I had to tell them how to make it. You know. Wait, so you were selling it. So in addition to a patent lawyer, you're also selling um, hemp products. I was selling a patent portfolio oh, for a particular product. And I needed to tinker with the, uh, I set up a chemistry lab in my garage. But Lola was my biggest guinea pig, my first gu and only guinea pig. And she was cured of cancer. That's so, And it's not just me. Look online, cancer cure cannabis. I've had clients that had huge businesses in the space that develop vape pens with a specific combination of uh, carriers and things. They had pancreatic cancer cured. A 70-something-year-old woman running a big huge empire that cured her pancreatic cancer 10 years ago with cannabis. And these are things that are very disruptive to the powers that be. Yeah. Now you know why it's illegal. I question, you know, when ethanol was popular as a motor fuel and um, happened to be right at the same time that certain companies, Rockefeller, et cetera, were pushing the oil. That's when um, hemp became illegal. Wow. So I, I don't know if there's a, you know, there was a newspaper people that 
didn't want, they had forest holdings and they didn't want hemp to be around to compete with their forest holdings. Interestingly, hemp is better for paper because it's got natural binders in it. You don't need chemical binders. So hmm. Dow Chemical and other forest holding companies get together back in the 30s to preserve their investments, expand their businesses. I have to say, it's unfortunate that we only have like 20 minutes total or so, because this is probably a great three-hour discussion. Yeah, I feel like there's so much more left to uncover. So we might yeah. have to come back to this topic again soon. Yeah, let's come back someday. Absolutely. I have time. I love talking about this stuff. I have a lot of enthusiasm for the industry and, and for those participants that have so much enthusiasm, it rubs off on me. Yeah, you that's know? that's absolutely the... The, it, for any of those folks who get a hold of this, and you know, maybe you can help us spread this among the community a little bit. But um, that that that's the exact kind of uh, person that we you know made this podcast for. Um, you know, people in their space who want to and need to learn more about intellectual property. I mean, it's the stuff you should know about IP <laughs> podcasts. So, um, so I guess with that, um, I'll just say, Kevin, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, you can find me on LinkedIn if anybody that's seen yeah. this needs to reach out to me. It's yep. Kevin we'll in this when we post it. So it'll be there. And for those of you who did watch and, and enjoyed the conversation, you can connect with Kevin. You can also share and like the podcast on LinkedIn and on YouTube. Um, and yeah, thank you guys so much for, for joining us today. And thanks, Kevin, for being our guest. Thank you, Kevin. Yep, thank you. Okay. See ya.